1. In Luke chapter 1 this morning, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 25 here in just a few moments. I want to call your attention before we begin to the decorations in the auditorium. We are grateful for those who put those together for us, who have adorned and decorated our building as we celebrate this season. A team of people led by Joy Rowan and Marnie Potvin put those together for us, spent a number of hours decorating, and we're grateful for their hard work and effort. So if you see them around, um, make sure you greet them and thank them for their work. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 1 through verse 7. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, this is God's word to us, his people. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Let's ask for God's help as we consider his word together this morning. Father, we come before you asking for you to guide our hearts and minds. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would Use the word that you have inspired to challenge us, to convict us, to encourage us, to win us, win our allegiance to our God again. So, Father, convince us of the truth of this text. Help us to submit humbly, willingly, and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, Steve Brown, Chaplain Steve Brown, preached from Luke 1 that records the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary. The angel announced that she would have a child through a miraculous birth. Without a husband, she would be with child. This morning, we're going to look at the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. Now, Luke begins his gospel. Let's get an orientation of what he's doing. He begins his gospel with evidence and eyewitness testimony in order that this Roman official would understand and believe fully in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Just glance over these first two chapters and see the headings that are there. We're going to see this back and forth description of the births of two men, Jesus and John. First, we have this announcement of John, then of Jesus. Next, we're told of the birth of John, and then of Jesus. And in between these stories, the two mothers, with their similar miracles, meet one another. We'll consider these accounts together over the next couple of weeks as Christmas approaches. Now, what is Luke seeking to accomplish with this arrangement, with these stories laid out in this way? The birth of John the Baptist is not recorded in any of the other Gospels. This is unique to Luke. 
So what he's doing is he's leading us to compare and contrast these stories. Their similarities and significant differences. And he's seeking to emphasize two main important points here at the beginning of his gospel. First, Luke wants Theophilus to understand that God himself is the central actor, the main character, the one guiding and controlling all of the action. The story of Jesus originates, is orchestrated by the sovereign hand of the one true God. One author notes, it's not easy for a Roman official to believe that a poor Jewish teacher executed as a criminal is in fact the son of God. That such a man could be an eternal king and savior of the world was very hard for Theophilus to accept. So Luke starts at the beginning to show that this man and his forerunner were no ordinary people. The sovereign God ordained their births and destinies. I want you to consider this question as we begin and set up this text. Why does God send an angel to make these announcements of what he's about to do? Why not just do the miraculous and then explain it afterwards? Why predict and announce these things ahead of time? When God says to these two ladies, for which the birth of a child is naturally impossible, that they will have a child, he is demonstrating in an unmistakably clear way that only he could have done such a thing. The only person who can make such an authoritative, unexpected, and impossible proclamation is the one who has the absolute power to accomplish that word. He can say what is going to happen because he controls what is going to happen. God sends his angel beforehand to predict these pregnancies rather than sending them after to explain them because he wants to demonstrate unmistakably that he is in charge. He is God. He will keep his word. This is God's work. These births are not some unusual coincidence happened upon by God and he decides to use them. They were planned, ordained, and ordered. By the sovereign will of God. Now the second point to note from Luke's arrangement of the materials is that he is highlighting the supremacy of Jesus in his gospel. He's making a contrast between the birth of John and of Jesus. John will be great. Greater than any man who'd come before him. Yet his greatness is found in his role as the forerunner of Jesus His greatness comes as he points at the greater, as he points at the Son of God. John will later say that he's not even worthy to tie Jesus' shoes. And this comes from a man that Jesus himself declares to be the greatest of men. If this is what the greatest of men says about him, how great must he be? How great is the one to whom John points and worships. Gabriel will tell Mary that Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. This one is different even than the greatest of men. 
You see, greatness in God's eyes is found in those who point at Jesus with their words and their lives. So I want to lead us to where the text is calling us and urging us to respond. I want to set that before us here at the beginning. How is this text leading us to respond? Well, a God such as this deserves our absolute confidence, our trust, our worship, our obedience. We're not to just give mere lip service to God, only saying that we trust him. Saying, look at what he does at this time of the year as we celebrate Christmas. This is a God that deserves our absolute surrender, our absolute trust. And words alone aren't enough. Our lives, what we truly believe, what's truly borne out by how we act and think and behave, are to demonstrate that even when he leads us into difficult days and heartaches, we will trust him still. He's able to fulfill impossible, impossible promises in order to bring salvation to lost and blind sinners. So this text again, unsurprisingly, leads us to worship Jesus and trust God to keep his every word. Our text will teach us that God miraculously fulfills his promises in preparation for the Messiah. Now, I just want us to pause as we look at this story. And this is probably a good reminder. Every time we come to a passage of scripture that we're familiar with, we know how the story ends. But because we know there are other stories like this in scripture, we know what will happen in the end. We've seen this movie before. But let me encourage you to view Zechariah and Elizabeth with fresh eyes. Fully enter into the story from their perspective. Consider their thoughts and their feelings as revealed in the text. Consider how this news would have struck their ears. Examine the text with me and remember that these are real people. Responding to these incredible and miraculous events in very human ways. So we'll consider our text together, noting four main points. First, God's faithful followers often face trials. In verse 5, we're given the setting for the text. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Herod the Great is only mentioned here and in Matthew 2. He's the most famous of the Herods that we see in the Bible. He has a great deal of influence on the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. He ruled over Judea by command of Caesar in Rome. He's not a Jew, but an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, a relative of the Jews. He wants to win the favor of the Jews over whom he rules, and so he marries a Jewish woman who's from a wealthy and prestigious family. He's a great organizer and builder, a great administrator for the people. In some ways, he served them well. He's even recorded to have lowered the people's taxes at least twice and even give sacrificially in order to help them in a time of famine and great need. He's so popular that some Jews form a pro-Herod party called the Herodians. With the Pharisees and Sadducees, they will oppose Jesus. And yet we know that he's also a petty, jealous, and ruthless man. He was constantly afraid that someone would strip him of his power, take it away, usurp his throne. And he becomes increasingly paranoid. He ended up murdering his wife, 
her brother, her mother, and even several of his own sons. And he's most famous for that decree to have all Jewish babies under the age of two murdered in order to ensure that this potential rival, this king of the Jews, would be eliminated. Now in the next phrase of verse 5, we're introduced to an ordinary yet faithful country priest named Zechariah. His wife is also from the family of a priest. So not only did they come from an honorable heritage, we're told in verse 6 that they are faithful, godly followers of Jehovah. Look down at verse 6 again. It says, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They're not righteous because they're priests, because they're from the right family line. They obeyed and followed God. And it says, with great commendation, they're righteous in God's sight. They trusted in God and his word and sought to walk obediently before him. Now this verse establishes not that they were sinless, but faithful. It's giving us the setting of these characters. And notice now in verse 7, we're introduced to their hardship and their heartache. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So here we have the challenge in the plot of our story. Not only were they childless, but they were also now point, past the point of being able to have children. They're too old. They're unable to physically conceive now. And Luke is saying this situation is humanly impossible. It's over. There's not a chance for them to have a baby now. Though God viewed this couple as righteous, many of those who knew them would have assumed otherwise. To be without a child was to be under the curse of God. It was wrong theology, certainly, but it was common theology. It was a common assumption of the day. So childlessness was an extremely difficult hardship for a woman in the first century to bear. It was part of her identity and value to society. You can remember the other stories of women in scripture who are not able to have children. Remember, Sarah felt the approach, the reproach of Hagar because she could not have a child of her own. And when we studied 1 Samuel, we saw that Hannah was constantly badgered because of her inability to have a child. And that's where we have a lesson. Faithful followers of Christ are not exempt from the hardships and challenges of this life. God allows difficulty and challenges to our faith in order to show himself strong. This is setting up the crisis and the solution that only God can provide. God intends to bring us to the end of our resources to the end of ourselves, where we recognize the only one that can do anything in this circumstance is him. And sometimes he has to bring us to that point because we don't look to him. We don't truly trust him like we might say we do. This passage, the entire passage, rings with the truth that Gabriel states in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Look down now at verse 8, and we'll read from verse 8 through verse 17. Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest, 
before God when his division was on duty. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, that's uh, John will go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Secondly, we see God's faithful followers receive God's revelation. Have you ever met someone who made you a promise but didn't end up keeping it? What if they made you many promises? A series of promises. And those promises continue to go unfulfilled. Perhaps it's a business interaction where the person states they'll provide to you some product or service and yet they fail to keep their word. Maybe you're patient with them and allow that some unforeseen obstacle delayed or prohibited them from fulfilling what they agreed to. But if that kept happening, certainly wouldn't it sour you on the relationship You would wonder if the person making the promises was either unwilling to keep his promises or unable. Now, I want to be clear. God is nothing like that kind of person. He's not like man that he ever speaks anything but the truth. Every word he says comes to pass. Yet God had made scores of promises about the coming of Messiah. And as we enter this story, It has been 400 years of silence and waiting. Now, we know that number because we know that's the time between the Testaments, but I want you to wrap your mind around just how long that is. Our country was just beginning to have settlers arrive 400 years ago. It hasn't yet been a full 250 years since the Declaration of Independence was signed. 400 years is a long time. To go without further revelation. For God's presence to have been removed from Israel and their temple. Those who are faithful to God would certainly have been tempted to wonder if God is still committed to keeping his word. Was he now unwilling to do so? Perhaps Israel had sinned far too often and frequently for God to forgive them. Maybe he was done with them. Maybe he'd grown tired of their unfaithfulness. Certainly he was able, wasn't he? But when? Was he willing still to work on their behalf? In verse 8, Luke alludes to the way that the priests would serve. A Jewish priest like Zechariah was required to travel to Jerusalem to serve in the temple two separate weeks each year. This was one of those weeks that Zechariah just happened to be in Jerusalem. Do you think that was a coincidence? Verse 9 tells us he received the highest honor 
and greatest opportunity of his career as a priest. This could only ever happen once and it often did not happen to a priest at all. From among the thousands of priests, perhaps as many as 20,000, his name was randomly selected to enter the temple and burn incense on the incense altar in front of that veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. This altar of incense is closely associated with the presence of God in the most holy place of the temple. This was an incredible honor. The fire on that altar was never to be put out. And incense was offered on it once in the morning and once in the evening. The priest offered incense while others gathered outside for prayer as we see in our text. And it seems likely from the size of the crowd that this was the time of that evening offering. Zechariah would have been thrilled by this opportunity as he enters in to fulfill his priestly duties. And he would never have expected or been prepared for what happens next. He sees an angel of the Lord standing next to that altar. And what we hear behind the text as we read that is God is on the move. God is breaking into the darkness. God is working to fulfill his word. God is at work. Now, do you know what the name Zechariah means? It means God remembers. Do you think that's a coincidence? Do you think that it's a coincidence that God comes to a man named God remembers just as he's about to fulfill his words to his people? Isn't there even something in that name that's supposed to be a lesson for us? God remembers all of his words, every one of them. And will keep them even when we can't see how or understand why he's working this way. He will fulfill all his promises in ways that we can't comprehend and don't expect. He comes to an ordinary country priest from among perhaps 20,000 priests in the land of Israel. And he shows up at the exact perfect moment. The angel addresses Zechariah's understandable fear and next says something that we're not really prepared for or we don't understand from the context. He says, your prayer has been heard. What prayer does he mean? There are two possibilities. It could be that as a faithful and godly man, as a faithful and godly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying for the coming of the Messiah. They've been praying for their nation. That God would come again and bless his people with his presence. Or it could refer more personally to their own situation, their own heartache and struggle. It could refer to their prayer for a child. And to me, it seems like the context gives a stronger case for that being the prayer. Though both of these are answered really through the revelation of God's plan that the angel brings. And this teaches us another important lesson about prayer, doesn't it? If the prayer the angel is referring to is a prayer for his son, notice how Zechariah is almost surprised. Based on his response in verse 18, it's almost as if he's given up hope. That was a prayer he prayed years ago. God's unable to fulfill that now. His wife is older. There's no way for them to have children. 
God graciously answers our prayers in his way and in his timing. We don't order God in our praying. We ask him to do his will. We trust that he will do what's right and best, both for his glory and our good. So the application is pray. Keep praying. Pray with confidence, in faith, knowing that he will answer at exactly the right time. He will answer in ways you can't expect or predict. He hears the heartfelt prayer of this faithful couple couple, and answers in an unexpected, greater way than they could have understood or imagined. He is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. So pray in humble submission, saying, God, you do what you want to do because you know the right thing to do here. I trust you. He knows exactly what he's doing. He understands all that he's doing in a situation. When he answers, when he says no, when he delays to answer, he knows the best time and the best way to answer. So pray in faith, trusting him to accomplish all his will. Now, Zechariah is told seven specific things in this revelation the angel gives him. First, he's told his elderly wife will miraculously have a son who's to be named John, which means God is gracious. Second, this child will bring them and others great joy. Third, this child will be great before God himself. And pause here on this one. Consider for a moment, even before he's born, think of the hopes of young parents as they're waiting on the birth of their child. And to hear this news, he will be great in God's eyes. Fourth, he must be completely committed to not being controlled by anything, no intoxicating substances. Fifth, because he is to be completely controlled by the Holy Spirit. And notice something unusual. It says, even from his mother's womb. And again, this is a point, this is a detail that the Spirit includes to help us see God's sovereign wisdom and control. God had appointed John to be his servant even before birth. Jeremiah says the same of himself. Jeremiah 1, 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Paul also echoes this statement in Galatians 1, 15 and 16, where he writes, he set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. It's all stacking up to make this huge argument that God is sovereignly in control, accomplishing his will for the redemption of sinful man. What response should this stir up within us? The angel continues, sixth in verse 16, we read that he would lead Israel toward repentance. Lastly, in seventh, he would prepare the way of the Messiah through his message of repentance. We're told he'll go before the Messiah in the power and spirit of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet who spoke boldly in a day when it was not popular to do so. He was able to demonstrate great power from God. And listen to the last two verses of your Old Testament. 
Malachi 4, 5 and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. It's saying God's people must humbly turn back to God before they can receive the Messiah. We must repent and believe. God's people must receive his words and respond in faith in order to receive the blessings of his promises. This is incredible, isn't it? What incredible promises. How unexpected. What miraculous intervention. Is this the highest point of tension in the story? How will Zechariah respond? Perhaps. Let's read how he responds in verse 18 and following. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent. And unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. Our third point, God's faithful followers suffer when doubting God's word. Zechariah responds to this incredible news with doubt. He does not believe but asks for a sign. He says, how can I know this? Seeing and hearing God's word from the mouth of an angel obviously wasn't enough. Knowing from scripture that God had done similar miracles in the lives of his people before was not enough. God had given Abraham and Sarah a child when they were almost a hundred years old. He knew that story well. Was this Too hard for the Lord? You see, when our eyes are fixed or locked onto the things of this life, we struggle to believe God's words. How could God love me? This circumstance isn't working out the way I want. When we have the cross that declares over and over again, he's loved you to the ends of the world. One author compared this to our ability to block out the sun with a quarter. All you have to do is move the coin close enough to your eye that you can't see the sun behind it. We often hold our problems and expectations in the same way, bringing them so close to our eyes that we can't see the amazing, powerful, life-changing promises of our God. God in his kindness is here showing us the nature of our hearts. It's to doubt This isn't just Zachariah's response. This is the way our hearts tend to drift. Zechariah wants more proof than the scriptures. More proof 
than a living, talking angel speaking to him. He wants proof rather than God's promises. Doesn't that sound familiar? Even faithful followers of God struggle with doubt. And notice where he is. Just remember, this godly, faithful man is in the midst of carrying out one of the most sacred acts of worship. And when he receives specific personal revelation, he still doubts. We can be in the middle of personal or corporate worship, engaged in following God's commands, and still drift into this kind of sin. This is our hearts. Unbelief is that prevalent. It's that sneaky. Now Gabriel does give him a sign that his words are true through an act of God's discipline. In spite of the incredible revelation that he has received, Zechariah will not be able to experience the blessing of celebrating this news with his family and friends for months. He's made mute. Some will say he's made mute and deaf. Now this chastening will, tempor- will be temporary. We know it lifts later when he responds in obedience after the baby has arrived. He insists that his name is John, as the angel has said, and in that moment his speech returns. But Gabriel makes clear at the end of verse 20 that God's words will be fulfilled exactly as he said in their time. He always keeps his promises. This provides us with a warning and a call to truly trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and not to lean on our own understanding. In all of our ways, we're to acknowledge or rely on him and he will make straight our paths. Remember, remember what Gabriel says to Mary. With God, nothing, nothing is impossible. Do we believe that to be true in our lives? Not that he'll give you whatever you want. Nothing's impossible with God. But that he'll never leave you or forsake you, no matter what hardship you're facing. We can see in this text that God loves. He delights to exalt in his own sovereign ability to keep his words where we cannot see any possible way for him to do so. How will this happen? God can do it. God wants to teach us to trust him fully. He's saying, trust me. Trust me. I can and I love to do what seems impossible. I want your gaze to be fixed on me, not on your problems. I want you to trust me completely. Don't rely on your own wisdom. Our last point, God's faithful followers rejoice in his grace. The story concludes with Elizabeth She keeps herself hidden, we're told, until it is no longer possible for others to doubt that she's truly pregnant. She recognizes God's miraculous, impossible work in her life. She recognizes his personal care for her. Listen to her words again. She says, he looked. He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. What beautiful theology She recognizes that God sees her individually, personally. He knows her grief and heartache. He sees us in our need and he cares. Now he may not respond in the way that we expect, in the timing that we would want, but we know he sees. 
He knows. We can be sure he cares. Will you trust? God's work in this older couple's life again demonstrates that God still has a purpose and plan for us even when we might begin to doubt that. To those in our church family who've served God faithfully for years and are tempted to believe, well, now it's time for you to take a back seat. Maybe let some younger people come and serve. Can I just encourage you never to let age hinder you from God's work in and through you? God's never finished with his people. You can't age out of God's grace. This church family needs you to continue to grow, to continue to pour your life into others. You're a vital part of God's plans for this body. This church family needs you fully engaged and invested. Whether that's in regular prayer, whether that's investing your life in discipling younger believers, whether that's simply being faithful and showing up and caring, paying attention to others. You've experienced God's work over time and know the power of prayer. You've walked with God Use that capital. Spend that capital for the sake of the body. Titus 2 encourages the younger to pursue older believers and for older believers not to withdraw from serving those behind them. So keep growing in your walk with God. He wasn't done with Zachariah and Elizabeth and he's not done working in and through you either. Conclude our message with this main application. Trust your God to work in your life in his perfect way and timing. The encouragement of this passage reminds me of the simple trust of a child. When my children were much younger and smaller, we lived in a different house. I would set one of my boys up on the top of this entertainment center that we no longer have. It was seven or eight feet tall. I would have to stretch and reach and set them all the way up there. They were two years old or younger. And I would have them jump into my arms. And when they kept their eyes on me alone, they would lean right over, right away, and happily fall right into my arms. And just experience the rush of falling and being caught by dad. But when they looked around the room, and this usually happened as they got a little older, and they began gauging the height, that big smile would begin to falter a little. And they would begin to have doubt creep across their face. And again, once I got their attention back on me, they would lean forward and fall again into my arms. Think of Peter walking on the water and sinking when he takes his eyes off of Jesus. Will we keep our eyes on the one, the only one, truly worthy of our trust? Isaiah writes, you will keep him in perfect, complete peace, whose mind, whose gaze is fixed on Yahweh, on the Lord, because he trusts in him. Our passage this morning, it argues, it warns, and it compels us to place confidence in the God of the impossible. If you don't know Christ, you've never put your faith in him, you've never believed on him as your Lord and Savior, put your trust in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Turn to him this morning in repentance and faith. We would love to talk to you. There are a multitude of people around you that would love to share Christ with you. I'd be willing to talk to you. I'll be at the Welcome Center after the service. 
If like Zechariah, you recognize an area of your life where you are giving in to the sin of unbelief, turn back to him again. Even mature, faithful believers struggle to trust God in all things. This is our normal condition. But the person who's highlighted as faithful is our God. Even when we're unfaithful, he is faithful still. So turn to him in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word as the God of the impossible. Lord, we're thankful that you intervene into our lives. Lord, you're not hesitant because we are often faithless. You don't balk because we don't hold up our end of the bargain. We have no reason to ever mistrust you, and yet we do again and again and again. We blind ourselves by holding things in front of the light of your word, of your character. Lord, help us to lay aside the sin and the weight that so easily besets us and look to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Please stand as we sing. Lord, our eyes do look forward to the time when we see you face to face. And Lord, until then, we pray that you would strengthen our faith to trust your word, to trust the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Thank you for the example of a godly woman, Elizabeth, who trusted you to do what was humanly uh, impossible. Lord, and yet what wonderful um, 
fruit came from her waiting on you and allowing you to do your holy will. And Lord, in, in our day, people need to see you and need to know you, and we need to be confident in our relationship with you. So we pray that you'd continue to grow us. As Pastor said late in the sermon, Lord, help us no matter our age to have a, a desperate sense of our need of growth personally and greater Christ-likeness, Lord. And would you do that shaping and changing in us even today, Lord. Please be at work in our lives. Thank you for this church body and for the way you use one another to, to sharpen each, each of us. And we pray, Lord, for that continued work from your hand today. Please press your word down deep into our hearts and minds as we uh, leave this room now. In Jesus' name, amen.